Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to, I'm actually going to start in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28. As you're turning there, um, I want to say it's been a sweet time of corporate worship so far and just being reminded of what Booney asked in our confession or confessed in our confession that oftentimes our actions don't match our words. We say one thing, yet what we do says something else about us. Um, and I want to ask then a question. Have you ever wondered what the lost world sees and what they think about us when they look at us? And I'll go ahead and tell you they are looking at us. Um, the reason I'm asking this is because much of what the watching world perceives about God is based on how his people live. It's based on how we live. They may not be reading the Bible, but they're reading us. Um, so I'm going to ask it a little more pointedly. When the lost world around you watches you, who and what do they see? Do your actions match your words? And are you living in a way that reflects the, uh, the words of Matthew 5, 13 through 16? Are you the salt of the earth? Are you the light of the world? Uh, does your light shine so bright before others that they see your good works and they glorify the Father in heaven? It's a weighty thing to think about. It's a weighty responsibility, but one that we have been given as the church and individually as the members of it. And you may wonder, what does all this have to do with Hebrews chapter 13? Well, this morning, the author of Hebrews is starting to narrow down. He's starting to, to go a little deeper into what it looks like to live distinctively in this world in a way that honors God and in a way that honors our brothers and sisters in Christ um, we're going to start this morning in one of those sections of Scripture we would call uh, practical or applicable, uh, like somehow all of Scripture isn't practical or applicable, right? Uh, but before we get into these, I want you to understand as best we can why this text is exactly where it is in the book of Hebrews. Um, it's not a simple add-on as we get towards the end of the book. It's not a clean, uh, smooth conclusion or transition to the next book. Um, it, for a reason, is the climax. It follows 12 chapters that are drenched in theology, in doctrine, uh, Christology, uh, the doctrines of salvation. Uh, there's a reason that that is the case, and this is where I'm going to make our first point today. I have six for you note-takers. Um, should be able to write them down. I'll, I'll tell you as I get to them. Um, but this first point is really the foundational point for all of the rest of them today. Uh, so the first point. Christian doctrine and theology are the necessary foundation for Christian living. Okay? Christian doctrine and theology are the necessary foundation for, for Christian living. If you'll look in chapter 12 with me where we concluded last week, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence in all. This verse is the key. It's the key exhortation to help us understand and unlock what follows in Hebrews 13, 1 through 18. Uh, the therefore that it begins with. That's connecting the former, um, the latter with the former. And he's saying that because you, through the faith that you have received in Christ, have now received a kingdom that is unshakable, now go and worship God rightly in reverence in all. And maybe a simpler way of stating it is this. Uh, Hebrews 13 that we're going to look at this morning, and Booney's going to look at some next week. Um, Hebrews 13 provides specific, practical instruction 
for us to fulfill the author's command given in 1228 to worship and serve God and his people. It's not the only place we see it in the scripture. Paul does it in Ephesians and in Romans. Um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he spends in, in Romans, he spends 11 chapters laying out doctrine and theology and then takes chapters 12 through 16 and, and teaches application through that. In Ephesians, the first three chapters are dedicated to doctrine and theology and then the three following are, are practical instruction. And, and the instruction is to be lived out with the foundation of the theology and the doctrine under it in the preceding chapters. You have the Sermon on the Mount as well. And all of these, they presuppose one thing. They presuppose that we have faith in Christ. Why is that? It's because our faith precedes our works. Um, you, you, can't start, you can't start at commands. You can't start at duty and practice apart from a right understanding of the triune Godhead. And apart from the right understanding that faith is found in Christ and him alone. But you could say the opposite of that as well. Uh, a faith, uh, you, you probably also don't have a saving faith if it's not worked out rightly in worship and service to God and his people. And I would say read James 2, 14 through 26 on that if you don't believe it. Um, how many of you ever had an ethics class in high school or college? Have you ever taken an ethics class? Did you find it frustrating? <laughs> I found them pretty frustrating because everyone in there, they viewed ethics and they viewed morality and they viewed behavior through their own lens of what they believed was true or not. And the class really doesn't help it because, you know, the class never establishes any kind of absolute truth or any kind of solid universal moral law or doctrine. So there's no foundation laid that informs our morality or informs our ethics or our behavior. And so really the only thing the class teaches is this. Whatever ethic or moral fits the situation you're in, then that's the ethic or moral that you apply. So basically an ethics class is teaching you that there are no absolute truths and they're trying to get you to eliminate, eliminate absolutes. Um, beware of this. Young men and young women who haven't had these classes in school, beware of this tactic. Uh, beware of this tactic from your friends, from music, from TV, from movies, etc. My point is this, we need to know sound doctrine. We need to know theology because without these things, uh, you're not going to be able to rightly apply morals and ethics and, and behaviors and works in various situations in your life. Um, we've already talked about it this morning, but there has to be an absolute moral law that governs and informs our actions. And that standard, as Booney stated earlier, is God. Uh, he is our moral law. And anyone who doesn't know God... The truth is, you will not be willing, nor will you be able, um, nor will you want to uh, live up to the ethics and the morals that we're going to talk about this morning. And it's because you don't have God as your moral standard, nor do you have God to uphold you and strengthen you as you seek to um, live according to his word. Apart from faith in Christ, you will be unable and unwilling to uphold his standard uh, of living. So with that kind of as the foundational point today, um, we're going to move on to uh, the other points. I will say this. The author of Hebrews doesn't give us an exhaustive list of morals this morning. Okay? There, there's not an exhaustive list of practical things that we can turn to. But he does deal with a lot. Um, and I'm going to deal with a few of them this morning. And I spent some time this week trying to figure out what's the connection between these five or six things that the author of Hebrews lays out. Um, and 
I think there's some connections there, but I pretty much just landed uh, on the fact that, okay, he deals with love, hospitality, compassion, marriage, sexual morality, immorality, adultery, covetousness, and contentment. Again, he deals with a lot, okay? Um, I think he landed on those things because he knew that church intimately. He knew the things that they needed to hear. He knew their struggles. He knew what they were facing. And we kind of get a glimpse of that back in Hebrews 10. He says, but recall the former days when you, um, after being enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being um, partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Um, And he goes on to continue to exhort the Hebrews to continue in those things, and we'll get to that later. But I'm just bringing that up so you understand that these aren't random exhortations. They were specific and necessary instructions for that particular church. Uh, However, understand the fact that they still apply to us today um, as well. They are true for us. So let's read today's text, uh, beginning in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. We'll read through Hebrews 13, verse 6. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning for your word and the sweet time of worship that we had together so far. God, we pray that that would continue as we turn our attention to your word, that you would work in us by your spirit this morning to show us your goodness, and your faithfulness, and to show us apart from you, um, we cannot live in a way that honors you. God, help us to hear your words this morning and understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Point two, continue in love. He begins in verse one, let brotherly love continue. Uh, remember, it's presumed that we love God, so he's beginning with loving our brother. And this should sound familiar. It is uh, the truth coming from uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 40, um, when we read of the greatest commandment. And, uh, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On, the two, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So according to Jesus, this is the greatest commandment that we have as believers uh, to one another, to other people, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a brotherly love. And in, keep in mind, 
this is written in the masculine, so it says brothers. The application is brothers and sisters. Um, but does anyone know the Greek word for brotherly love? Does anybody know the name of the city that is called the city of brotherly love? Philadelphia, okay? That is the Greek word for brotherly loves. Two words put together, phileo and adelphos. And they literally combine to translate uh, to have a great love for your brother from the same womb. And we know that in general the word brother in our, in our world can mean multiple things. Um, someone could be our brother in the fact that, that all, of create, all of created beings could be our brothers and sisters in the fact that we are created in the same image of God. Okay? So you can look at it that way. The second way could be um, our brothers and sisters familial, the ones that are in our family. And then a third way of looking at brothers is speaking of our spiritual brothers and sisters the children of God, our brothers and sisters in and of Christ. And I think in this context, that is what the speaker is primarily um, speaking of, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are in Christ of the same womb, yet we are of a spiritual womb. We've been rebirthed, or we've been born again by the Spirit, according to John 3, as Jesus explained to Nicodemus. God has adopted us in son, as sons and daughters we're joint heirs with Christ, and that's why the author can say, and I hope you picked up on this word, that we are to continue. Okay, let brotherly love continue. What does that imply? Well, it implies that it was already there. Where did it come from? Well, it was granted to us in salvation. I want you to write this down if you're writing it down. 2 Peter 1, uh, 3 through 15. I want you to go and read it in the whole context later because it's really clear concerning this, but I want to give you probably the verses that most of us know from that section, um, but I want you to go read it later in its context. We'll just look at verses 3 and 4 from Second Peter 1. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted, us, granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become the partakers of the divine nature. Put it simply, Brotherly love was granted to us in salvation. It's been given to us. So the exhortation here for us and, and for the, the Hebrews was to continue in it. Use what you've been given. Sustain brotherly love. Um, or to state it in the negative, don't mess it up. Don't neglect it. Don't destroy it. Don't pollute it. Don't try and redefine it. Love those within the family of God. Now, what do we know about our earthly families when it comes to love? Sometimes we're going to sin against each other, right? Sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. Uh, we're going to be tempted to fall into jealousy and greed and gossip and all other types of sins against one another. Feelings are going to get hurt. Disagreements will happen. Things will be said the wrong way. Things will be taken the wrong way. And, you know, it's not all that different at times in the family of God either. So what are we to do when these kinds of things occur inside of the family of God? Well, as much as it depends on us, we're to continue in brotherly love. We're to have honest conversations, walk in repentance, pray, seek peace, get counsel from brothers and sisters in Christ, stop being offended and continue loving your siblings in Christ. This is what it 
This is what it means. This is what it means for us to um, love the family of God in a distinctively different way. Uh, I hope that rem- I hope that reminds you of our uh, identity series back in October. Um, back in John chapter thirteen, thirty-four, and thirty-five, we read a new commandment I give to you that you what that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by all this, or by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul says in Romans, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Okay, but we not only, not only does the world know that we are believers and disciples by the way that we love another, one another, um, we also know ourselves that we are disciples of Christ if we have love for one another. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. In other words, we know that we have salvation because we love the brothers. One way that you can tell that you're saved is if you have love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And to what extent are we to love them? Well, Paul continues, uh, to the extent that we lay down uh, not Paul. He continues to to the extent that we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're to love our brothers and sisters to the extent that we would be willing to lay our lives down for them. Third point: we are to show hospitality to all. In verse two in Hebrews chapter thirteen, we read: "Do not neglect." In other words, again, it's already there. Okay, but do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. In the times that this letter was written um, to these Jewish believers, hospitality was something that was, that was really universal among all people. Okay, it wasn't something that was reserved only for Christians to do. Um, and that had to do with the fact that when you traveled in those times, it was pretty dangerous. Long roads... Um, difficult to travel. It made you susceptible to being uh, jumped and ambushed and robbed. Uh, They were hard to navigate. And so when you did make it to a village or a town, um, you also didn't want to stay in the inn that they had there. Okay, Inns were dangerous. They were um, more like a brothel than what we would think of today as a hotel. So the Greeks, the Jews, the Christians, the Romans, all alike, when they saw it as their responsibility that when a stranger came into their town that they were to take them in and show them hospitality, um, regardless of the stresses or the challenges that it might bring up, they would take them in. They would feed them. They would give them directions to the next town. Uh, they would clean their wounds. They would allow them to rest. You know, if this is something that at that time was expected of all people, how much more would it have been expected from those who are in Christ, for those who are Christians? How much more today is it expected of believers to um, continue and not neglect to show hospitality uh, to strangers? Um, Romans 12, 13, 13, we read, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 9, we read, above all, Keep, love, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As the church, as followers of Christ, we are commanded to not only show hospitality, but to seek it out. Seek out opportunities to show hospitality and do it without grumbling 
despite what it may bring upon us, whether that be challenges or hardships. Uh, some of the hardships you may face is weariness. Uh, no doubt the Jewish Christians uh, think about all of the people that would have been traveling through the towns that they lived in uh, day by day, and yet they were called to bring them in, feed them, clean their wounds, give them a place to rest. Uh, it would have been easy for them to grow weary. Uh, you may face the challenge of being, being taken advantage of. Um, how many of you have been burned or mistreated um, in spite of the fact that you showed great hospitality to someone. Um, I would say that if you haven't, you will be. Uh, yet the exhortation still is that we are to show hospitality to strangers. Uh, which strangers? Who are we to show hospitality to? I believe in the context here that strangers is primarily speaking of other believers that we don't yet know. Okay? Other believers that we don't yet know. But I also believe it could be extended to unbelievers that you don't know. In other words, all strangers. Uh, Galatians 6.10, I think, helps us understand this. It says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then the author of Hebrews continues, and he gives them this little phrase that should have reminded them of the hospitality of their father Abraham. He goes on and says, For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Think back to Genesis 18 for a moment. Abraham had what he thought were three men came to his tent. And he got up and he ran to them and he showed them great hospitality and he, he served them, um, washed their feet. And then he turns out, it turns out that it was God and it was two of his angels that he entertained there. We read similar stories in Judges involving uh, Gideon and Manoah. They both showed great hospitality and later find out that it was an angel of the Lord that they showed hospitality to. Uh, so I want you to understand the point of this verse is not, you know, you really ought to be nice to everyone because you might miss a supernatural experience with an angel if you don't show hospitality. Okay, that's not the point of the verse. The point of the verse here is you just, you never know who the stranger that you help out is. You just never know. Therefore, open your home. Open your lives. Show strangers the hospitality that Abraham, Abraham did. Show strangers the hospitality that Gideon and Manoah showed, even when they didn't know that they were entertaining angels of the Lord. And then Jesus takes this principle even further in Matthew 25. And I hope you see the parallels in this section of Scripture to what we were looking at this morning. In verse 35 of Matthew 25, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So in a very, very real sense, when we love our brothers, when we continue in brotherly love, when we show hospitality to strangers, when we remember and visit those who are in prison, we are in a very real sense entertaining the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
Speaking of visiting to those who are in prison, uh, let's move on to our fourth point today. We are to show compassion to the mistreated. In verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. I think prisoners here is primarily, again, referring to those who have been imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. But it can certainly be extended to all of those who were in prison. And understand that in ancient, ancient times, it was not uncommon um, for believers to be thrown into prison, to be thrown into jail because of their belief in Jesus. Um, prisons were different then. Okay? They were more of a temporary holding place before the trial and before the sentencing, whereas today when we think of prison, it's kind of the, the flip of that. It's become a, a stockpiling of people, sometimes for a lifetime, after a sentencing and after a trial. So a different, different prison. But, um, you know, in those times, while a believer was in prison, while a person in general was in prison, they were dependent on the church. They were dependent on someone else to meet their basic necessities, food, clothing. Um, They were dependent on the church uh, to remember and to visit and to assist them. I was perplexed by the word remember, just trying to think, what does the author mean by remember? Um, Is it it we're supposed to just think about them? Uh, Is it pity? Is it sympathy? Is it empathy? Uh, I think the author is pointing us to something deeper here. I think he's pointing to compassion. And so just for some context, the basic differences would be pity is saying, I feel sorry, or not I feel, but I'm just, I'm sorry for you. That'd be just basic pity, I'm sorry for you. Sympathy is, I feel for you. Um, Empathy would be, I feel with you. Okay, and then compassion is, um, I feel and I am moved by you to the point of deeply caring and wanting to do something to help you, to relieve you in your suffering. And, and I love the, the phrase, as the author continues here, he says, as though, he tells us that we are to remember them, as though we are in prison with them. Um, the King James and the New King James Version, I think they render it in a way that um, makes it more graphic, if you would. Uh, King James says, um, remember them as though you are bound with them. It's not just there, but you are bound with them. And the New King James Version says, as if you are chained with them. That, I think, is compassion. Remember those who are mistreated as if you are with them, bound in chains with them. Galatians 6.2 tells us we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12.26 Um, If one member suffers, all suffer together. I think it's important we understand we should never allow a brother or sister in Christ to face suffering, to face adversity alone. I think we can also admit that oftentimes when we're in suffering, we want to be left alone. Okay, so as a brother or sister in Christ, you have to You have to fight through that. You can't allow a brother or sister to suffer alone. Um, Continue in brotherly love. Show them compassion. Bear their burdens. Suffer with them. One of the worst things we can do as a follower of Christ is say, I I have enough burdens of my own. I have my own problems. I I can't take on any more. 
We can't have this out of sight, out of mind mentality. That is the opposite of Christ-likeness. That's pride, that's selfishness, that's self-pity, that's self-centeredness. I know for me, when I'm suffering, I'm most comforted when somebody is there suffering with me. I want somebody alongside of me. So, if, therefore, I've got to be willing to also do the same. I've got, to willing, I've got to be willing to suffer alongside of someone in hopes that one day they'll suffer alongside me. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, And being likely, therefore, to take your own turn of suffering and to need the sympathy of your fellow Christians, show sympathy to others while they need it, and they will gratefully remember you when you are in bonds or in adversity. So we're to show compassion uh, to those who are facing adversity. Fifth point this morning, sexual purity honors marriage. Sexual purity honors marriage. In verse 4 we read, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I think it's important this morning that we go ahead and state some truths about marriage up front, because these are some of the truths that society is seeking to attack. Um, I think we can all agree that society is less concerned with honoring marriage and more concerned with dishonoring it. So, a few truths state up front. Up front God created marriage. Um, he said it's not good for man to be alone. Marriage eliminates solitude. Marriage helps for, with the prevention of immorality. It's for our sexual purity. Um, in marriage, we're called to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And marriage is a, it's an enjoyable union where love can be expressed. Marriage is also to be between one man and one woman. And anything other than that is not marriage. Uh, marriage is to be for a lifetime. Marriage is hard work. Marriage is honorable. Uh, why would the author say that marriage is honorable? Honorable. Well, because it's, marriage is a picture that points to something that is bigger than itself. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ and his church. And therefore, we are to do as what the author has said this morning. Let marriage be held in honor among all. It's honorable. Now, please hear this this morning. The health of our marriages is essential to our witness as believers. Hear it again. The health of our marriages is essential to our witness as the church and as members individually of it. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews is telling these Jewish Christians that the way they live, that the way they visibly portray the value of marriage, the prize of marriage, the way that they visibly honor marriage, it is a demonstration of the gospel. It's not an afterthought when it comes to the gospel witness of the church. It's high. Okay, it's not low on the list. It is high on the list of all the various ways that we can practically flesh out the doctrine and the theology that we've been reading through and studying the past 12 chapters and 24 weeks in Hebrews. It's to be held in honor among all. And this is, a, this is one of those positive active statements. Um, we are to hold marriage in honor 
It's something that we are to work towards, whether that's publicly, visibly, practically, privately, personally. Um, it's, marriage is something that should be esteemed. We're to uphold it and value it. The author continues in the verse and goes on to state in a negative way also, there are certain ways that we can hold marriage in honor. In a negative way, he states, let the marriage bed be undefiled. In other words, don't defile the marriage bed. What does this verse mean, to let the marriage bed be undefiled? Well, I, I think if we continue in the verse, that uh, helps us understand it. He says, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. There it is. The things that defile marriage, the things that defile the marriage bed, are not the things done within the bounds of the marriage bed. They are the things that are done outside of the bounds of marriage. Sexual immorality and adultery, those things defile the marriage bed. And these two words are not synonymous in the New Testament. They, they both imply something different. Um, adultery is something that is forbidden in God's Ten Commandments. It's the seventh one. It's condemned and forbidden throughout the entire Bible. To define it, an adulterer is someone who is unfaithful to their spouse. Um, when a spouse steps outside of the bounds of marriage, of their own marriage, whether that is physically, whether it is mentally, whether it is emotionally, that is adultery. Sexual immorality is also condemned throughout the entire Bible. Um, the Greek word for sexual immorality is pornos. And this word it covers a broad range of various sexual sins, but I'm going to try and help us narrow it down today and define it in a way that I think is pretty cut and clear and dry. Sexual immorality is any kind of sexual activity outside of the command or outside of the commitment and covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. There's your basic definition of sexual immorality. Any kind of sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between man and woman. So there's one thing you need to remember. Uh, sexual morality, okay, in all of its as aspects, and sexual immorality and all of the different manifestations that it shows up comes down to one central thing. Sex belongs in marriage between the husband and wife and nowhere else. And every, please hear this, Every form of sexual sin is a subversion of marriage. Every form dishonors marriage. I think this helps us understand the state of our world today. Um, if they're lost, they're sons and daughters of Satan. They are the children and the father of lies. And so we should expect that the message we get in society is the exact opposite of what Scripture has to say about marriage and sexuality. Uh, the enemy of our souls wants to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of the marriage bed and to discourage sex inside of the marriage bed. Church family, please recognize this ploy of the devil and do not give this strategy a foothold. The author goes on to help us understand what will happen to those who dishonor marriage through sexual sin. And he says, for God will judge. I think it's interesting to note that in all of chapter 13, this is the only time that an exhortation carries along with it a statement of judgment. 
God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral and, and, and keep in mind that our God is a consuming fire. His judgment will not be light. The judgment of God may show up in multiple ways. It, it may show up in discipline and judgment in this life. It may show up in the loss of reward on the last day. It may show up in both of those ways. For some, it may be an indication that you're not a true believer, that you're not regenerate and born again. For some, namely those who are unbelievers, it could one day mean condemnation to hell, though keep in mind it's ultimately your unbelief that gets you there, not simply your sexual sin. And I'll conclude with a few basic principles for marriage and sexual purity. Um, if you're married, if you're not married, these are things you need to know too. Think rightly and honorably about marriage. Think rightly and honorably about sexuality. Don't listen to what the world says. If you're married, be regulated by love. Husband, be the head of and love your wife as Christ is the head of and loves the church. Wives, lovingly submit to and respect your husband as to the Lord. And then both of you, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Flee from sexual sin. Don't get into it. If you get into it, get out. Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife to avoid sexual immorality. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. And again in Ephesians 5.3, Paul says, of believers, sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among us. Flee, get out, run from it. If you're not married, here's some guidelines for you. Don't marry someone unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6.14 tells believers to not marry unbelievers. So if you are a single believer in here this morning, qualification number one is that the person you're looking for would be a Christ follower. If they're not, do not waste your time there. Find someone with a good reputation. Okay, in other words, what do, what do others say or think about this person? Are they haughty? Are they proud? Are they lazy? Are they easily angered? Find someone who's well-spoken. What does their speech reveal? Well, we know what our speech reveals about us, right? It reveals our hearts. So what do they talk about? What do their conversations consist of? Are they vulgar? Do they speak out of both sides of their mouth? Do their actions match their words? Find someone with good friends. Okay, finish this statement. Birds of a feather flock together. You can learn a lot and know a lot about a person by the company uh, that they keep. And now with all that said, let me just remind you, there are no perfect people out there. Use these as guidelines and principles, but there are no perfect people. And then if you're currently engaged or if you're currently dating, let me just leave you with this application. Do not put yourselves in situations where your passions will rule you. Uh, if either of you allow yourselves to get yourselves caught up in a in a sexual situation that will compromise your, pur your purity... It is not that you love each other too much. That's the lie of the world. The truth is that you actually don't love each other enough. You don't love each other enough to respect each other's purity before God. Here's how you know that you 
love the person that you are dating or engaged to, even married to, uh, when you see each other's purity and when you see each other's holiness as the most important thing in your relationship, that is when you really love each other. Moving on to our last point this morning. Point six, live with contentment and satisfaction in God's provision, presence, and protection. I'll say that one again, it's kind of long. Live with contentment and satisfaction in God's provision, presence, and protection. In the first part of verse 5, the author of Hebrews says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. I think the underlying sin here is the sin of covetousness. Well, what is covetousness? It's an over-eager desire for the wealth and things of this world while envying those who have more than you do. It's the opposite of contentment. In today's world, we would often disguise this and make it more likable and we'll call it something different like ambition or, or drive. We'll say things like, if you want it, you got to go make it happen. Truth, it's a true statement. It really is. But we run the risk of getting so narrowly focused that we, that we elevate wealth and we elevate celebrity and we elevate status and we elevate sexual fulfillment over things like marriage and, and family and purity and contentment. And we see this in advertising every day. Listen, advertisers don't want you to buy just the things that you want or need. That's not what they're after. They want to make us want or need something that we didn't even know we wanted or needed. If you're like me... <laughs> You know, you see something and then all of a sudden you can't imagine life without that thing that you didn't even know existed five minutes ago. Anybody else relate to that? Walk in contentment. Now, with that said, the author of Hebrews is not saying don't work. He's not saying don't buy this or that. Don't provide for your family. He's not saying don't have money. Don't have belongings. Don't have possessions. He's not saying that. He's saying keep your life free from the love of money. Money is not the root of all evil. What is? The love of money. Don't lust after it. Don't lust after the things that you don't have. That is covetousness. That is discontentment. And if you don't think that there are dangers in this, uh, listen to what is said in 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul in exhorting Timothy says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So if you want all kinds of evil in your life, if you want to invite all kinds of evil in, lust after money, lust after things. He continues, it is through this craving, okay, think back to our definition for covetousness, it's an over-eager desire for the things of this world. Okay. He says, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We all know the reality of it. The more you have, the more you what? The more you want. And when we're consumed with 
the next thing, the bigger thing, the better thing, the more money, the promotion, the better, better spouse, the bigger house, the newer car, nicer clothes, more friends, you fill in that blank for you. It shows our lack of satisfaction in what we have. And the sad truth of it is this craving for the things that we don't have can get to such a degree that we wander away from God because our our eyes are now fixed on the things of this world and not fixed on the things of God. Listen to the truth truth of it. People are kept from salvation because of their love of money. Do you hear the danger in love of money? Discontentment. Christians, you run the risk of being robbed of the joy of God's blessings if you walk in lack of contentment and lack of satisfaction. We have examples in Scripture of men who have sinned in this area and men who have succeeded in this area. Here's some who failed miserably. Adam, Haman, Ahab, Balaam, Achan, Judas, Ananias, Sapphira, all of them were discontented or they loved their wages or they desired the riches of the world. And then think about the way things ended for some of them. Judas hangs himself. Ananias and Sapphira suddenly drop dead. And then you have the opposite testimony of Paul to the church at Philippi. He says in Philippians 4, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? Content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Paul also instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy that uh, 6.6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Luke, or excuse me, Jesus in, in Luke chapter 12 Um, He tells a man in the crowd this. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he tells him a parable of a man who built large storage barns so that he could store his grains up and so he could uh, sit back and relax and eat and get fat and enjoy things and drink and be merry. And then he concludes with this, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up a treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The point is this, and this is kind of the ironic truth of it. You're going to lose it all. You're eventually going to lose it all. Either now or next week or a few months down the road or in a few years. When you die or when Christ returns, let that truth sink in. You're going to lose it all. I love Matthew Henry's quote about this. Uh, speaking of, and he's speaking here more of like considering the things we have had and the things that we are going to, that we think we might get. But he says this, uh, the duty and grace that is contrary to covetousness is this, being satisfied and pleased with such things as we have, present things, for past things cannot be recalled, and future things are only in the hand of God. What God gives us from, today, from day to day we must be content with, though it may fall short of what we've enjoyed in the past, and though it may come up short of what we expected for the future, 
We must be content with our present lot, and this is the sure way to contentment. True contentment doesn't rest in the fact that, okay, now I have all the stuff that I need. It rests in the fact that we worship and serve the God who gives all those things. It rests in the fact that we worship and serve a God who takes care of us. And the writer of Hebrews, he goes on to help us understand this and shows us the true source of contentment. In the end of verse 5, he says, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is, the, this is the centerpiece of chapter 13. Everything else revolves around it. Everything else is hung on it. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Spurgeon says, it is as though it can be said, I will not, not leave thee. I will never, no, never forsake thee. There's no room to be covetous. There's no excuse for being covetous. For God hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We ought to be content. If we are not content, we are acting insanely, seeing the Lord has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. True contentment is found in God's presence and promise to never leave or forsake us. And this is granted to us in Christ. We spent 24 weeks reading and studying the doctrine of the doctrine and theology of the first 12 chapters of 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 hebrews Um, so for today suffice it to say this if a man has everything and he does not have christ he has nothing and if a man has nothing and he has christ he has everything how can we trust that god will supply all of our needs well he's good he's faithful And if you are his in Christ, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And we can trust that he knows our needs before we even ask. We can trust that he will give us what we need when we need it. If you really want to humble yourself this morning, consider what you deserve. Remember back to our confession. Paul stated in Galatians, all who rely on works of the law are under a what? A curse. We can't keep God's law. Sinless perfection is not an option for us. And our catechism stated we are guilty of having disobeyed God. Therefore, what we, de- what we deserve is eternal death. In Romans, we read in chapter 3, verse 10, No one is righteous. No, not one. We've heard that again out of Psalms this morning in our call to worship. Uh, Romans 3.23, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. 6.23, the wages of sin is death. 512, death spread to all men because all sinned. That's what we deserve. But brothers and sisters, be encouraged this morning that in Christ, he will not give you what you deserve, but what you need. What you need is him, his son, his spirit, and the eternal life that they grant. Again, from Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And in 623, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And therefore, from verse 5, 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In verse 39 of chapter 8, nothing will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He gives us what we need, which is the righteousness of Christ, not what we deserve, which is eternal death. And because of that, the author can conclude this section confidently um, with a confession from the Psalms 118 and 27 and 56. He says this in verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. There's no reason to fear, brothers and sisters. We can be confident that there is nothing that can separate us from his presence. Therefore, there is nothing that can separate us from his provision and his protection. Uh, just to paraphrase Romans 8, 31 and 39, if God is for us, who can be against us? God gave up his own son for us. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ. Not death, life, angels, rulers, present things, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In closing this morning, I want you to hear again what Spurgeon had to say in light of all of this grace that we've been showed in Christ, in light of the fact that we have God's presence and therefore his provision, his protection. Spurgeon says, we ought to be content. And let me add here from our intercession, whether that be cancer, whether that be a coma, or whether that be covid if we are not content, we are acting insanely. Seeing the Lord has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee.